0: I'm Tom Keane with David Gurra. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: Dean Kurnit. Is with us. He's the CEO of Macro Risk Advisors. He joins us on the Spectrum Enterprise phone line, Spectrum Enterprise Nationwide Fiber-Based Network and IT Infrastructure Solutions. And, uh, Dean, great to have you with us.
2: Yes, good morning. Thank you.
1: We'll get to volatility in a moment, but let me start with the speech. I know that you, like so many others, were, were lending an ear to that speech. And I wonder sort of how you interpreted it, how you as an investor interpreted what the president uh, had to say last Friday.
2: Well, it's a continuation of some of the more nationalist uh, America-first policies that uh, he's espoused and and essentially that he believes is the mandate that got him into office. Um, What these uh, policies mean for markets, uh, clearly uh, you can paint a picture of uh, a negative outcome for markets. Uh, Of course, so far there's really been very little uh, materialization of risk. Um, And... uh, you know, these these political-type uh, sources of volatility have been increasing with, uh, with Brexit last year, the Trump upset, and a, a very heavy calendar of elections in Europe. It's very challenging to know uh, how and when some of these risks will make their way into markets. And so investors are – you know, could be in for a bumpy ride this year. It's going to be uh, – it's going to be challenging when
1: you look at sources uh, of volatilities you say uh, are, are the political type ones the the, the largest they looming the largest uh, taking up the most space
2: they are um, they're in this category I like to call it non market market risks in uh-huh. other words it's it's not the typical kind of risk that that investors are comfortable with discounting um, it, it's they uh, sometimes things happen for uh, reasons that uh, e- even in advance you-, you believe that the economic outcome won't be a good one. Uh, for-, for Brexit, uh, folks argued very strenuously, and I would, uh, I would uh, contend rightly that uh, long-term this was not the right uh, outcome uh, for the UK, for the EU, and yet uh, the citizenry was uh, enraged enough to, you know, to vote for the exit. And I think the same is, is true uh, for Trump. Uh, For investors and and at Macro Risk Advisors, we help uh, investors hedge very often. And um, when you're contemplating hedging, of course, you're trying to weigh the the risks in the market versus the cost of the insurance that you're you're buying. And in the last uh, six weeks or so, even though we've been consumed by tweets and uncertainty on the geopolitical uh, landscape, the, the the risks in the market, the, the day-to-day fluctuations have been quite minimal. And so for the folks that did buy hedges, that did expend option premium, uh, they've certainly not been rewarded. And what that's done is it's continued to weigh uh, on the, the VIX index. The volatility levels uh, continue to decline.
1: When, when you're looking at this particular type of risk, how, how challenging is it? What are what, what investors saying to you? What's their biggest concern they're bringing to you when they're, when they're wondering about how to navigate this kind of non-market market risk, as you call it?
2: Yeah, I think um, it, it's so unpredictable. He's unpredictable. Um, what version of Trump policies our markets going to get? And uh, in the last six, eight weeks, we've seen this uh, reflationary uh, enthusiasm almost, where where the view of Trump as a tax cutter, as a source of deregulation, uh, as someone who can rekindle animal, animal spirits that may have been um, suppressed during the, the post Uh, crisis uh, timeframe. So that's the good side. And of course, markets have priced in quite a bit of that already. And and the investors I speak to are grappling with the question of, is it too much too soon? Uh, Will some of the policies ultimately emerge in a protectionist fashion, uh, a a trade war with China? These are bigger picture issues that, you know, certainly... Uh, confound market participants. And then the other thing I would just add, and I think this is really, really important, is the interaction between fiscal and monetary policy has become considerably more complicated. Trump makes Janet Yellen's job much harder than it already was. And for a long time, the central banks were the only game in town. Uh, There's an exhaustion, I think, uh, among investors globally with the force of monetary policy, uh, but uh, already uh, Yellen and her counterparts at the Fed are trying mm-hmm. to uh, articulate that they need to anticipate uh, potential inflation through some of the Trump policies. Yeah, I know Brisk
0: Kasman and J.P. Morgan said they were decidedly focused on the path to some form of fiscal stimulus.
2: Mm-hmm. Good morning, everyone.
0: Bloomberg surveillance from New York. Oh. David Gurren, Tom Keene, in the same studio. It's been, New it's New York. been a while. It's been a while, like weeks, months. (laughs) Dean Kernit with us with a math of correlation and volatility with macro risk advisors. Dean, one of my great themes in Davos was the uncertainty within or the uncertainty upon or the uncertainty about the uncertainty. It's a little bit like the volatility of the volatility. Tell us about that relationship. What are pros trying to do when they trade the vol on vol?
2: Right. This is a, uh, a nuanced uh, point, but uh, I think it's actually quite important. Um, we, we spend our time uh, studying not just volatility, but the correlation profile of sectors, uh, of stocks in um, assets like the S&P 500. And an important point is that the Trump administration has created a huge sector divergence, at least in the first eight weeks or so. You had your reflationary-type sectors, things like the XLF, which have skyrocketed uh, post, the, post the win, uh, along with uh, interest rates. And then you have the other side of it, which is the more disinflation, defensive uh, sectors, things like uh, consumer staples, things like uh, utilities and yeah. you know, the, the IYR index. And so, again, the, the underneath the hood of this very low VIX is a lot of sector action. right? And, uh, and I think that um, – and this is where your, quote, vol of vol question comes in – Uh, Even though the VIX is at 12, it's certainly not going to spike down to six. But I do think that investors are underappreciating the potential for a more correlated move in Uh, stocks. And then, math guy, I want you to take
0: it over to uncertainty, where you can't create the probability distribution. You can't do the mathematics. If we talk about Trump uncertainty, whatever our politics is, is there uncertainty upon uncertainty from where you sit?
2: I really believe that's the key thing, and that's what's changed in the last eight weeks. And, again, that's what I would argue the low VIX does not properly account for, It's a little backward-looking, the VIX. It's looking at realized volatility and pricing options as if that will continue. The uncertainty factor with Trump, again, I'll tie it back to uh, how it complicates the the mission of of the central banks. By introducing this uh, potential reflation or even inflationary impulse, at a time when the business cycle is so old and 4.9 percent unemployment, Yellen said it herself, is it appropriate to throw a trillion dollars of stimulus uh, at a business? Uh, during the late stages of a business cycle when we're already at 4.9% unemployment. And what does that do? What does it do for potential inflationary impulse and how might she have to react? I think that's very challenging for investors at this point.
0: That was fabulous. Thank you so much, Dean Kernan. about you, David Gurra, but my answer is when I'm confused, I like to read a lot. Mm -hmm. I read three lengthy, balanced articles this weekend on the Affordable Care Act. Sitting with us is truly one of the most experts. Whatever Democrat, Republican, whatever your politics are, Mike Levitt has a perspective on the Affordable Care Act and what it means with his work as a state governor, Utah, and then as a 20th Secretary of Health and Human Services is becoming called HHS. I like Health and Human Services uh, 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 better. What's the Republican plan? I read a lot, and I haven't seen one. Is it? Do you have it? Can you show it to us this morning?
3: One thing I believe we can be certain of is that at some point there will be a bill passed the Congress titled "Repeal and Replace." They have dined out politically for three different elections. They've been rewarded. It's an essential. They have to act. And I think they're poised to. What the actual definition of repeal will be and what the definition of replace, we don't know. Do
0: you, as a grizzled politician, and I mean, I I know there's like three Democrats in Utah, so it's not a normal (laughs) thing, but as a grizzled politician, do you assume you can't get to replace and the Ryan uh, McDonald plan, McConnell plan? You can't get to replace until you do the repeal.
3: I I find it very difficult to think they can do them simultaneously. I think that, that the, met, the method and the means by which Congress works makes that difficult. I think the logic of it uh, makes it difficult. Uh, I think they can lay a framework out for what they mean by replace and do that in a very short order after they do repeal. But... I think they'll. You can actually begin to chart how this looks. I think they will pass a budget resolution, then I think they'll go through a series of, of uh, executive orders that will have some impact. Then I think they'll start on repeal, and then I think they'll have to break the replace down into a series of bills, and my own sense is they'll lay a framework out and then legislative against it. Legislate against it.
1: Secretary Levitt Tom's been reading. I've been reading. I'm sure you have as well, and you bring to that reading uh, more perspective on this than than we have. Uh, when you see President Trump signing the executive orders he signed uh, over the weekend with regard to the Affordable Care Act, what do they mean? Give us a sense of, of what he's, he's going to lessen the burden on agencies. Uh, and there was a, a lot of commentary about how that was eroding the Affordable Care Act. What, what's he done thus far?
3: There were two executive orders that were signed uh, immediately upon his entering office. One of is a fairly standard part of the playbook of transition. You want to get control of anything in the regulation pipeline that you can still take out before it becomes effective. And
1: President Obama did something similar when he was inaugurated as well. Virtually
3: every president does this. Uh, and it's anything after November the 20th that was put into that pipeline you can bring back and take a look at it. Mm-hmm. And so that was the first executive order. This The second uh, basically said, uh, I want to repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. And I'm instructing all of those in my administration to aggressively begin to look at it. It had one piece of important information that hasn't been reported, and that is, I want to go through a policy process before you do anything, Mm. but I'm telling you, this is the direction we're going. It was a direction setter. It was an enabler. And it did give them sufficient authority that in the gray area or where there are areas of uncertainty in the law, they can regulate. Now, that's very significant because the Affordable Care Act had many, I mean, I've heard the term 2,000 different places where it said the secretary shall pass regulation. And they have been busy for the last uh, six years passing regulation that defined the granularity of the Affordable Care Act. Well, there's a lot of detail there That once you take it out, it's like taking the thread out of a tapestry. Things begin to fall apart, and they can probably do quite a bit to restrict the usefulness or restrict the functionality Mm -hmm. by simply passing regulation. As the
1: chairman of Levitt Partners, you know the principles here. I imagine you know Congressman Price, the president's picked to be the head of of HHS, to be your, your successor in that job. And I recall reading that he had a plan uh, for replacing the Affordable Care Act. What, what sense do you have from what he's proposed in the past of where he might take this going forward?
3: This is a very good point because the Republican Congress actually acted with a bill, passed it through both the House and the Senate, and it was vetoed by President Obama. The best predictor of the future is what we can see that in the That body of past. literature, yeah. yeah. And I, I think you can see that there are a number of things mm-hmm. that, that they could and couldn't do. Uh, for example, I think we'll see a lot of activity on Medicaid. Mm-hmm. They would like to obviously send more of that to the states with discretion. Now, theres it's a double-sided uh, coin. Uh, on one hand, uh, it gives the states more flexibility. On the other, it begins to limit the amount of money that they receive. And if you're a budget maker, that's an appealing thing because it gives you certainty. One of the problems for budgeteers in Congress mm-hmm. is that They don't know with certainty how much money will be spent on the entitlement program. How do you respond to the other side that says, look,
0: whichever way you slice it, whatever the Republicans do, the working numbers I have, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, Governor, is 7 to 30 million people go without health care. With this replacement of the Affordable Care Act, is your math seven to 30 million or do you have a different calculus? Well,
3: I, look, I think we have to remember the Republicans have made a commitment that they're not going to allow people to hang out there. Which well, Mr. A- Trump certainly has. A pr- I, I, excuse me, David. Every time I say Mr. Trump, a dollar in the bucket,
0: the president, <laughs> the president yes. says he's going to be sure everybody's happy on health
3: care. Well, the commitment is initially by the Congress that they're not going to allow the 20 million people to go without insurance. Now, that causes some problem for them on the budget side because they have to pay for that uh, while they transition to whatever they're going to put into place. And that will have impact on the tax uh, tax bills that they ultimately pass. But I think it's a big problem if they uh, do allow, if they were to break that promise because they would clearly that would be the rallying cry for the next three elections by the democrats. you know i was
1: talking with the the head of etna uh, a, a few months back and and he said the new president would have a few months to sort of right the ship here or these spirals were going to get out of control. and something else he said was that when you look at how this law was implemented there wasn't enough attention paid to the back end. Uh, he said there's a lot that could be done in terms of moving health care forward, but uh, the back-end services are still not where they need to be. Do you agree with that? How, how do they begin to change? How do you begin to change the infrastructure surrounding health care? I,
3: I do agree with that. And I also believe that there are great lessons for the Republicans to learn in this process from what the Democrats did. The first thing is they passed it with a strictly partisan vote. And that, sets a, that, that, that makes it very difficult to have it sustained politically over time. They have committed publicly that they're not going to do that. Now, one component of it is they have only a two-vote margin in the Senate, which is going to essentially require Mm -hmm. that they have that. Uh, The the, the second component is, the second lesson, I think, is it takes time to do this. You have to, the logistics of rolling out a massive program like this go well beyond what most people think about. So thinking they're going to immediately do this it's been in, in place for six years. They need time.
0: Right. We heard from Greg Vellier that the Republicans meeting in Philadelphia this week is the oddest of oddest things. A GOP with a president who um, some would say is a populist, maybe a conservative. I'm going to go to the great philosopher Brigham Young. Remember, a chip on the shoulder is a sure sign of wood higher up. How big a chip on the shoulder does this president have? He's the most unlevelled president. Or for that matter, un-Romney president I've ever seen
3: is he a Republican? There's a lot that we don't yet know about a President Trump. We know Candidate Trump, but we're we're only two days into President Fair. Trump. Uh, I think there we have we have begun to it's become clear that he's not going to be like other presidents. What that actually will look like, we don't know yet.
0: But there's a – we don't have – got to come back. I mean, please try (laughs) to get back. We'd like to speak to you on Bloomberg Surveillance again. I think this will be evolving, as you say, three days in and a busy agenda for the president this morning. Michael Levitt, thank you so much. Mike Levitt, uh, the former Secretary of Health, Human Services, and, of course, Governor of Utah uh, as well. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated Member, SIPC.
1: The uh, first quarter wasn't good. Second quarter wasn't much better. By the third quarter, I think that uh, our next guest was spitting out his cheese curds and culvers. David Harrow joins us now. He is partner and chief investment officer at Harris Associates. Joining us now on the Spectrum Enterprise. Oh, you
0: meant football. Ah, yes. Oh, I missed
1: it. Ah, yes. Spectrum Enterprise, nationwide fiber-based network and IT infrastructure solutions. David Harrow, there's a great deal to talk about here. You want to talk about the game, first of all?
4: Uh, Which game was that?
1: (laughs) Tom mentioned you might play coy, but uh, again...
4: Well, I have to say, and I've, I have mentioned this, the Packers defense has been suspect for such a long time, and it was really exposed. It was really exposed last night. It was just awful, really. Uh, I mean, that's. I mean, they just converted just about every third down. They moved the ball at will, and then mm-hmm. when the Packers looked to be doing something well, that fumble yeah. was nasty. But, yeah, let's talk about yeah. the Patriots, how, <laughs> good they are, how they earned it. And you know, Tom and I have always been big Patriot fans, and we're just yes, so glad yes. that they're able to prove that yeah. they, they are
1: winners. Nice to see winners. the underdogs so get do a do chance, a, yes.
0: Life will go on, and the Packers will rebuild. Are you at a point in your international investment where nice after pivot, Mr. Tom. Trump's? Nice. No, seriously, after Mr. Trump's speech, what is the response of the executives you speak to each and every day abroad?
4: Well, it's kind of a wait and see approach, and it is interesting. I, you know, travel frequently. Meet, we meet with our managements, and they're all very, very interested. Uh, this is the, the first thing on anyone's lips. Really, is is what the Trump administration going to do, and is it going to be positive? Is it going to be negative? And as I mentioned, I mean, certainly there are there there's both. There's some very strong positive uh, policy implications. And there's some negative, and the negative has to do with this trade and protectionism. And, you know, he keeps claiming that they're free traders as long as it's fair trade. I think that has to be clearly defined because businesses, uh, if they want to invest in places that will be exporting into the United States, I think they want to make sure that those assets and those investments aren't for naught. Um, so it is something they're all very, very concerned about. But on the other hand, you know the positives are pretty obvious. The deregulation, as you know, regulation has strangled certain sectors of the U.S. economy for eight years. If you looked at Mr. Barrow's uh, essays uh, from the AEI about one of the reasons why he believes. The recovery from the Great Recession was so soft, was because of the overburdensome regulation, and I think this is one thing Mr. Trump is really, really President Trump, I guess, is really working to alleviate. What are you, which would be positive
1: yeah. for investment on trade and on protectionism? What are you, what are you hearing? Are you hearing anything that makes that? Clearer for you when you hear Wilbur Ross testify say or Stephen Mnuchin? Are they giving you a better sense of where this administration might be headed? I think back of what Greg Valier was saying about uh, Doris Kearns Goodwin's team of rivals and and the fact that maybe the cabinet here will have some robust disagreement and influence what the president does. Are, are you closer to having more clarity?
4: I don't. I don't really think so. I mean, I think we just. I think in the next couple of weeks it will be flushed out. Um, but just you know, from what these people say in front of their uh, uh, congressional testimony, I mean, we know what these are like. A lot mm-hmm. of the Congress people are just grandstanding, so they say the safe, conservative thing, pretty much just to get you know the the, the, the appointment. So, I mean, I just don't know how serious to take the, this this, uh, no. this testimony in front of these. Uh, committees.
0: Yeah. Let's start, David, with a portfolio. Do you do you restructure your portfolio at the margin? Do you adapt your portfolio?
4: Well, as you know, we tend to act in a very, very evolutionary fashion. We price businesses. As as price moves to our valuations of these businesses, we make adjustments. And so if you look at the third and fourth quarter, we had a tremendous rally in some of the sectors. We were overweight, consumer discretionary, industrials, financials. And so maybe we've trimmed a little bit of this as they've reached their prices, their sell prices we're still very much overweight these areas because the revaluation has begun, but it isn't anywhere near completion. The pricing differential between these sectors and say consumer staples and utilities, telecoms is still way too well, large. So though we've trimmed a little bit, um, and maybe we look a little less overweight. We're still overweight some right. of those sectors. I would say we're, you know, in the third or fourth inning. Uh, we still have a long way to go before this. This uh, we get proper valuation differentials in these sectors.
0: What we're going to do is come back and talk to David Harrow solely about investment. Everything seems to be tinged with politics, tinged with international relations. Can we do that, David Gura?
1: Give it a try. Can we, can College we try, try here on Bloomberg and come back and <laughs> just
0: talk about investment, investment management. With uh, David Arrow. It's probably a good first question.
1: Is it possible to do that in this day and age, to to be a value investor exclusively? Yeah, I mean,
0: mean, can we come back and not speak about Donald Trump? Can we come back and not speak about the Green Bay Packers? We will try (laughs) to do that with David uh, Arrow. Are stocks rich, David?
4: Uh, certain places, I think it's hard to find value, In other places it's yeah. a bit easier. Yeah. And I think it's it's really hard to generalize and say stocks are rich. Mm-hmm. Stocks generally are richer than they were three-quarters of a year ago, that is for sure. sure. Remember those lows of February 2016. But um, yeah, they are still yeah. good places to find value. Do you find
0: value abroad in the land of Harrow, or is your foreign nation, the United States, where your value is this year? Which is it?
4: You know, I actually still think that the valuation differential between international listed companies and U.S. domestic companies is still is still pretty large in favor of uh, foreign stocks being a bit more attractively priced. Now, I have always argued that U.S. stocks should sell at some premium to foreign stocks, given the higher return characteristics of U.S. equities over uh, non-U.S. equities. But I think the valuation differentials, if you look at just kind of conventional price-to-cash flow, price-to-book, are are a bit more expensive than they should be. So I do think, if you look at the universe of equities, um, that foreign stocks look a bit more attractively priced than than
1: uh, U.S.-based stocks. I want to abide by Tom's rules here for the segment. don't want to talk about politics directly, but yeah. how, how difficult is it to be a value investor uh, right now? There is so much noise, if we can call it that, happening. Uh, is, is it harder than it has been in the past to be a purely value-based investor?
4: You know, to be honest, it's, it's never easy because... As value investors, we really make investment decisions based on the intrinsic value of the businesses in which we're investing. And your shareholder base, your client base, the consultants, all they want to talk about is macro, 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 macro. Now, we're not we don't believe macroeconomics is unimportant. We just believe it's only important to the degree which it impacts the medium and long-term earnings and cash flow streams of the businesses in which we're analyzing and as tends to happen is all this macro noise seems to have very very little if any impact on long term valuation which is frustrating in dealing with your constituents, but it's actually better in terms of looking for opportunity because if the market prices move on factors that have very little impact on medium and long-term valuation, that provides one with an opportunity to enhance return by taking advantage of the market's short-termism and focus on Mm non-fundamental factors. So it is frustrating in that you always have to talk about X, Y, Z and why it's underperformed or why it's lagged or why you're having a bad quarter or why you're having a bad half year. Uh, I do believe there's a trade-off. There's a trade-off between short-term performance and medium and long-term performance. And as you know, a good bottom-up value investors tend to do is they'd rather perform over the medium and long term. And this is what we explain to our clients. But sometimes they don't quite get it that way.
1: You know, I, I wonder if, if you could just walk us through how your positioning has changed here at the, the beginning of the year. I wonder when you look at uh, at, at consumer staples and utilities in particular, if if, if your uh, outlook for those two sectors is is markedly different this year than they than they were in 2016.
4: Yeah, the outlook isn't so different, but the valuations, of course, swing. Um, now over okay the years about three or four weeks old we have just a little change here and there if, if there's an abrupt price movement somewhere if there's a stock that you know is a large position that's you know keeps getting edging closer to our sell price we might trim a little bit but. We, we don't really, um, similar to changes in value being very slow paced over time. I mean a company should be creating 8, 9, 10, 11, 12% value per share every year. So when we value a business, that value curve should have a positive slope. It's the price that's volatile and we don't really move a lot unless either value moves a lot and underlying intrinsic value or if price moves a lot in either direction especially if one moves and the other doesn't. That's what causes us to be more active in terms of portfolio positioning. If one of those lines moves a lot quicker than the other, then our weights might be a little off-kilter.
0: David Harrell, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. He is with Harris Associates. She has been professor at the Booth School Austin Goolsby joins us, and of course, with a service to the Obama administration, uh, I guess we could try to avoid the politics here. Austin, let's do that. Avinash Dixit, okay. Avinash Dixit and Barry Nelbuff, their classic book, The Art of Strategy. And buried in it, they pay homage to the late Tom Schelling, one of our great losses of 2016, and Michael Porter, who was with us in Davos, on the game theory of a zero-sum world. Here's the headline, Austin. We are going to be imposing a very major border tax, which implies that if there's a cake and they have too much of the cake, whether it's Canada or Mexico, I believe those are the borders, we're going to get our piece of the cake at the expense of them. Are we back to neo-mercantilism with what you've observed in the last five days?
5: Uh, Starting to smell like it, doesn't it? You know, I I thought with the border adjustment tax, they were calling it uh, th- that they were going to reform the corporate income tax, it might be a creative way to get around the normal problems of putting in tariffs and trying to, to build up walls to, to your advantage at, at the expense of the other guy. But uh, I don't know. It, has se- it seemed like from the Twitter feed that, uh, that President Trump isn't for that border adjustment tax anymore, That he's, that he's literally just kind of talking back to the to the mercantilist side. Um, And that makes me nervous because, as you know, Tom, that's been tried hundreds of times. It's not like that has never been tried before. That has been tried and we know it doesn't work. So if they do that, boy, I I don't think the market's going to react well.
1: The new president has whipped out his sharpie and signed a few executive orders, one of which is to renegotiate the North American free trade uh, agreement, Austin, and and I I wonder if if you have any sympathy for doing that. If if as many people say, this is an old agreement, it could be revised. Uh, any common ground there between Democrats and Republicans revising that that deal
5: at least? Yeah, though you know the the negotiating parties in that are not Republicans and Democrats, as you know, it's you know getting Canada and Mexico uh, on board. I, I do have some sympathy for it, and a little known aspect by those outside that world is that the TPP was a renegotiation of NAFTA. Both Mexico and the United States were going to be parties to TPP, and it changed a bunch of things, which, you know, in the 20 years or so since we passed NAFTA, we've gotten better at trying to figure out ways to figure out Mm -hmm. what kind of things can go wrong so i'm sympathetic that if if they went at it with an open mind uh, that they could revise us a whole series of things i I don't know we're we're gonna have to see if that's what he intends it feels more like what he intends is in the zero-sum mentality that he's gonna have you know a collection of threats and a collection of demands and try to try to get our trading partners to give us more. Mm. And uh, look, all power to him if he can do that, but just please don't start a series of trade wars. That would be a disaster.
1: A question about your Council of Economic Advisors. Uh, We talk a lot about Trumponomics. How much of of defining a president's economic policy is done by the council?
5: (laughs) All of it. (laughs) It's the most important (laughs) job in the government. Look, the Council of Economic Advisors is the president's own personal think tank, basically. And so its influence and effectiveness depends critically on the relationship between especially the chair and the president. So if the president is listening to the CEA chair and and that chair is having an influence on them, then the then the CEA is is powerful, is important, and and mm-hmm. the arguments are being taken seriously. If the president is basically like, thank you, you know, and uh, <laughs> the, then the CEA's effectiveness is is not yeah. there because it's not a cabinet. It is a cabinet agency, but it's not one that has a bunch of regulatory oversight directly. So there's there's nothing you can do if nobody will yeah. listen to your argument. And
0: now, folks, we go back to early Austin Goldsby. This is six weeks out of Milton Academy. Uh-oh. Uh, what, happens, what happens when you tax the rich? Evidence from executive compensation, Journal of Political Economy, 17 years ago. Uh, Mr. Trump, I believe, is going to stop taxing the rich. Do they spend it?
5: No. Look, Look what, what that paper showed, and it's, it's just one paper of a large, large literature, that says the Laffer Curve argument that if you cut taxes for rich people, it'll pay for themselves is totally not true. The data's disproven that hundreds of times. Uh, and so in that, in that one paper, I was looking at corporate executives, and you saw around the time when Bill Clinton raised taxes on high-income people in 1993, there was a shifting of the timing of when they took their compensation. They tried to get as much as they could, cash out stock options, before he took office. But the longer run impacts were, were quite modest.
1: Here's a, here's a basic question. Why, why is tax reform so difficult? Why is it taking so long? Why is it proving to be so difficult time and time again?
5: Well, you guys know why it's difficult. Tax cutting is easy. Tax reform, i.e. anything that broadens the base or rationalizes the system, is very difficult because some people have to pay more in that s- situation. And a lot of times the biggest advocates of tax reform are also the people who are advocating tax cuts. So whenever the Republicans come forward with a plan that is we're going to lower the rates and broaden the base, you see the their, their advocates say, wait, 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 don't raise our taxes, let's just cut it let's mm-hmm. leave it in the same system and cut and that's what i think they're going to do again austin don't be a
0: stranger let's get you in here for Absolutely. a much longer yeah. yeah. conversation bloomberg surveillance austin of the Booth school uh, chicago thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast subscribe and listen to interviews on itunes soundcloud or whichever podcast platform you prefer I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.